I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 6, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When governments find themselves unable to use traditional means of regulating our activities, they often move to non-traditional means. In Philip Hamburger's Purchasing Submission, he details how the offering of benefits in exchange for waiving certain rights is a pervasive and as yet largely unchallenged way for governments to secure compliance. We spoke last month. A lot of people understand legislatures pass statutes, and then they tell the public, you must abide by this statute. And if you don't, we're going to take you to court and we're going to put you in jail. That's sort of how we understand law and government force in, in, in a legal context. We understand that that's how it works. But you tell me, what are the other ways that governments compel behavior out of us? Uh, that may be a long list, uh, but some of them are particularly salient and worrisome. That's right. So the Constitution establishes an avenue for control that's quite familiar from, if anything, Schoolhouse Rock, if not the Constitution itself, right? They can pass a statute and they can take you to court. But there's an irregular mode of control that's often used, familiar as the administrative state, um, in which a mere agency unelected passes a rule or interpretation or guidance or something like that uh, to control you and then can take you to their petty little tribunals in front of so-called ALJs. They're not really judges, but they're called administrative law judges. But it turns out that's only the first of the irregular modes of governance. Uh, there's another that's even more worrisome but entirely unfamiliar, uh, which is to pay us subject to conditions. And that seems so pleasing. They're going to give us money or sometimes a privilege, be it a license, something else special. And we feel so grateful. And it just happens to come with some limitations, uh, some circumstances that have to be in existence before you get the money in the barrel head or whatever else it may be. And that turns out to be a very subtle mode, a very dangerous mode of controlling us. In fact, it's now become a major means of regulation and deprivation of rights. Just one example that, that sticks with me is uh, you're a low-income person and you are eligible for some sort of welfare benefit and you can, you accept this benefit. However, the condition that is placed on your receipt of this benefit is that you have to let a social worker into your home at any time. Now, that to me sounds uh, like an unconstitutional uh, ag agreement that that you should not, in a, in a sense, be able that the government should not be able to cut that deal with anyone. Right. Now, the Supreme Court did uphold uh, a version of this in AFDIC. Um, the earlier versions of this were particularly appalling. Um, the money in AFDIC was offered uh, primarily for uh, unmarried mothers, single unmarried, uh, single women with children. Um, 
And because it was a condition that there not be a husband, of course, they sent in social workers at midnight or afterwards just to make sure there wasn't a guy around. And you can just imagine how awful that must have been. So uh, help us understand what's a condition and what is, uh, you know, what divides these conditions that are so worrisome from going into court and being told to pay restitution or being said, hey, we're not we're not going to send you to jail if, as you as you mentioned before we mm-hmm. started recording, Jimi Hendrix, you joined the army. Right, right. So Jimi H- Hendrix uh, was just riding along with others who had stolen a car. And of course, he also gets prosecuted, but he's given a deal. You don't have to go to jail, but the condition is you join the army and to the great misfortune of the United States and him, he was assigned to the 101st Airborne. <laughs> Fortunately for rock and roll history, he was released and went on to do things he was better suited for. Uh, so that worked out, actually. Uh, but what a strange way of getting people into the army. Why not just draft people or not? Then there's a political decision and debate, not some little subtle pressure. Uh, right. So when most people think about conditions, at least uh, no one, I shouldn't say that. Most people don't think about conditions. When most law professors think about conditions, what we do is we think about so-called unconstitutional conditions. These are conditions that restrict a constitutional right. And that's pretty bad. Um, but it's treated more as a sort of technical problem, a little conundrum. How can it be that something that's a gift actually restrains you to such an extent that it deprives you of your right? And this is treated as a little knot, and there are thousands of articles on it. Uh, But that sort of misses the boat, I think. Uh, I think one has to stand back from that little problem and recognize that the conditions have become an avenue for the purchase of submission, the purchase of submission to an unconstitutional regime, to a degree that it rivals the administrative state. Uh, It's a means not only of restricting rights in ways that people haven't fully understood, but also of regulating. So a lot of conditions are regulatory. They're not ways of defining something the government's buying. It's a way of controlling us in a way that would have been politically unacceptable if done through Congress, even politically unacceptable or unconstitutional if done through the administrative state. You can get away with it by buying it. So as as a political matter, we see this, hey, if you don't want to, you know, in in the 80s, the the big fight that I can recall was, hey, if you don't pee in this cup, you're going to lose your job as a as a private sector matter. Um, as a public sector matter, we have the Occupational Safety and Health Administration saying to 100 million private sector workers, either you get this jab or submit to a regular test of uh, viruses in your in your body or lose your job. Is is that does that fit neatly within there? That I mean, that's it's a regulatory agency, right? So, it, so the agencies can act both by making administrative edicts, which are like fake laws; they purport to bind you, or they can do it by paying you. I think, or by giving you some sort of privilege. I think the OSHA example. If I, mean, I haven't read the regs, but my impression is this is uh, an attempt to bind you. It does go so it does goes beyond the statutory authority of OSHA um, to actually regulate people outside the workplace. Um, And it's forcing the employers to make this a condition of employment. What it does illustrate that's actually part of the theme of this book I've written is that um, we see the privatization of control. The federal government has tentacles throughout the body politic and even to universities and churches to get them to control their personnel so that 
federal control is goes through society. It's not just political. And they can do this directly. It's the OSHA example. An example of the conditions would be, for example, telling federal employees, oh, you want to remain a federal employee? You need to get the job. Or, even worse, you're a federal contractor. You and all your subcontractors all the way down have to get the job or you won't get the contract. Um, and so it isn't turtles all the way down. It's conditions all the way down. And it's pretty frightening, actually. And so the gift in the, in this particular context would be a federal contract. A federal, it can be a federal contract in this instance. I mean, often it's federal grants, whether to private institutions like Columbia or to the state of New York. Um, it, it could also just be a license to a bank. Oh, here's a license. Oh, it's subject to some conditions. <laughs> and you should see people jump the threat of these being withdrawn. <laughs> it seems to me like they, there's a difference. Uh, among some of these, and maybe you can you can uh, draw some lines for me. Uh, a government contractor, if you want to do business with us, you must, uh, for example, have a clean record in terms of like criminal violations uh, among your employees or among your upper management or among the company itself. But when you talk about privatizing this control, I'm thinking about HR departments in companies across the United States that, to a very large extent, are simply agents of the state that the company has to pay. Right. Most employers, most universities, again, even churches, are in some ways, agents of the federal government. And we should recognize, you know, this, you know, one can't paint with too broad a brush here, most conditions are perfectly lawful and innocent. If the government purchases an airplane, why shouldn't it say, oh, and it's a condition of our paying you that it should fly? We don't have to pay you and then see if it flies. We're not going to pay you, and you can't have a claim against us unless it flies. This is very reasonable, um, even desirable. Uh, but the the problem is that it become, because it pretends not to constrain and pretends to be consensual, sometimes is, there's a risk that this can be used for all sorts of things the government otherwise would never get away with, and that includes the privatization of control. So, for example, um, education is not really within the sphere of federal interests. It's not a federal power. It was deliberately left out. Um, so how do you extend the civil rights laws to education? And the answer was, well, with conditions. Now, this is a little problematic because you're evading the, uh, the limits of federal power. Now, that's not to say people should discriminate. On the contrary, but it may be the mechanism you, by which you do this really matters. And here they're just paying people to conform so you don't have a political debate about it and you don't have the regular legal debate. And this is why, of course, for example, Title IX has been so, can be, leads to such abuses because you can use it to pay private institutions to carry out federal policy. And it may, to some extent, be a good policy. Some of it's been twisted to something that's a bad policy, but some of it was good. You pay them to carry out federal policy, and they can enforce it in their own little tribunals, which make administrative tribunals look positively wholesome, right? So you get genuinely inquisitorial entities that are entirely private. Oh, there's no state action, you say, <laughs> but you're carrying out a federal scheme. So this is really quite dangerous. People haven't understood how to categorize it, and my hope is that we can get there. Okay, so so getting there, have courts... Do they speak with one voice when it comes to dealing with these conditions that th that governments would like to impose, but understand if they if they used a different route that they could not impose? Um, on the whole, the courts 
haven't done much in this area. They have recognized unconstitutional conditions in the sense of conditions that restrict one's rights, and particularly in the First Amendment area. There have been some good decisions. Um, they use distorted language that often misunderstands the case, but the, rea- the, the outcomes of the case has often come out right. Um, Outside the First Amendment area, it's more iffy. And of course, that's just the conditions that restrict rights. The courts have not even recognized the conditions are used to regulate. And what that means is, I mean, this is both good and bad. Uh, the bad thing is that they're clueless about the way we're governed now. It's as if they've shut their eyes to a major mode of governance. Uh, the good thing is there simply is no precedent. It's not as if that recognizing this would run against precedent. There's just not, nothing there on many of these issues. Some of them, but not many of them. So there's some hope. When you see conditions imposed uh, effectively by the private sector in exchange for some benefit, um, and I would argue that there's a whole this this really gives uh, a, a big impetus to governments to impose all sorts of licensing, to impose all sorts of uh, hurdles that you may then escape. In exchange for uh, giving up or behaving in a certain way that the government would like you to behave, it seems like it's, if nothing else, an ins- a strong incentive to engage in the type of regulation that uh, you and I might think is uh, over overbearing. That's right. The failure of the courts to understand the way we're governed now actually, yes, uh, does incentivize uh, government to take those unlimited routes. Now, just for clarity, uh, let me explain that there are layers of conditions. Um, government itself can act through a condition, and those that the federal government will give money or privilege on the basis of condition, and that gets echoed by the employer and their subcontractors all the way down. Um, and so one's using one condition to get the uh, other private entities or states to, regu- to, to regulate through their conditions. So it's sort of do- layer, layers of regulatory conditions. This is very dangerous. Uh, can I give you an example? This is the one that actually got me into this. I had no interest in conditions, let alone administrative law. How tedious, I thought. <laughs> I was mistaken. Uh, but way back in the year 2000, I'm sitting in the living room of a friend of mine, a, a brilliant law professor and statistician, and I asked him a question, which I thought was innocent after dinner. I said, why haven't you published one of your articles? I see it's, it's circulating in manuscript, but why haven't you published it? And his response was, I can't publish it. I'm not allowed to. That got my interest. Um, he said he didn't had not gotten prior permission from the Institutional Review Board to do the research. And since it was statistical research based on information that isn't exactly hidden, but is about identifiable people, um, he needed prior permission. And so he was barred from publishing it. If he did publish it, he might be fired or not be allowed to publish again. Well, um, that was my introduction to this. Um, what we have is HHS and other agencies essentially giving research grants through institutions. and. The condition of this is that you submit to prior censorship. So the Inquisition is back. And of course, in the sciences, it's particularly lethal. Um, you do this in biomedical research, you actually kill people. And I can actually show death rate. It runs into the, at least the hundreds of thousands from their attempt to help us by censoring us. It's insane. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, to the extent that you see an avenue forward to say, the conditions that you are attempting to impose because you have chosen this route and not uh, a, a more traditional, uh, legally understandable route, it is 
per se illegal or unconstitutional. Well, so I mean, is 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 that it? Is that is there anything on the on the table that would, that would indicate here. that that's a possibility? Right. Okay. So, so there are layers of defenses. The the private university will say there's no state action. We're not a, pro- a state or federal entity, and the federal government will say, "Look, they're doing it, not us. There's no state action." <laughs> uh, of course, it's nonsense. It's all part of a federal scheme, and so there is federal action. So the federal government should be accountable. They'll also say, "Look, the federal government isn't doing the licensing of speech in the press. The private entity is." Well, the First Amendment was aimed at precisely that. The English government in the 17th century didn't do most of the licensing of the press. It handed it off to the universities and to the stationers' company. So the primary example of what the First Amendment forbids is precisely this delegated or privatized licensing. But the the key thing we need to get judges to recognize is that there's an avenue of governance they've forgotten, this purchase of submission, and that it's used especially for unconstitutional ends because why bother otherwise? Um, It's a way of evading constitutional limits. And it's a way of evading layers of limits. It's a way of evading the constitutional rights. It's also a way of evading public decision-making. I mean, look, the administrative state, you can say this much for it, at least they publish their rules. At least they have notice and comment. It's abysmal. It means practically nothing, but at least they go through the pretense. You don't even have to do that with a condition. You can avoid all of that if you want. We know about Chevron deference, the degree to which courts will uh, defer uh, to statutes that are written poorly. Um, and we know our deference, the degree to which a uh, court will defer to agencies in interpreting their own regulations pursuant to a statute. Um, but it seems to me that the, the big problem here may be that so many federal agencies have a great deal of discretion in applying X, Y, or Z. Well, they undoubtedly have too much discretion. Um, and I don't mind their discretion if they were just proposing rules to Congress. I wouldn't mind their discretion if they were just thinking. Um, what's problematic is that they're exercising unconstitutional and I don't mind their discretion, by the way, in distributing benefits. That's perfectly lawful. Um, what's problematic is one, uh, they're exercising unconstitutional power in governing us through administrative edicts, whether it's called interpretation or rule or guidance. Um, and two, uh, their attempt to regulate us unconstitutionally through conditions on grants and licenses. Both of these are unconstitutional mechanisms. And if the Supreme Court doesn't recognize this, we're all we will all be governed in unlawful ways. It's There's not much left, actually, of lawful governance. If you think about the relation ratio of statutes to administrative rules and conditions, I think um, nine out of 10 criminal offenses are defined administratively these days. Most, um, by far, the, uh, most adjudications are administrative. The constitutional governments is now, at this point, a fig leaf, a decorative fig leaf, it's just an option for the government. They can avoid it at any time. So to the courts have shown little interest here. Um, the executive branch headed by the president of the United States, if he's in the office, he wants as many levers to be able to pull as he possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress, for its part, appears to want to be able to blame executive agencies for their uh, overbearing behavior, uh, having written 
uh, vague statutes themselves that many of these agencies are just doing their uh, level best to interpret uh, fairly. And then people within those agencies that have never faced any type of uh, confirmation uh, before a, a political body like the U.S. Senate are nonetheless have the ability to come up, create new ways of uh, governing. It doesn't seem like anybody is really interested to the extent that this is a problem in solving it. Well, that's where this podcast is so useful, isn't it? Um, I think there are two solutions. No, seriously, there are two basic solutions. Uh, one is candor, to spread the word. Once we have the right names for things, once, as Confucius would point out, once we recognize things for what they are and are candid about it, a lot will follow from that. And I think increasingly Americans understand, or at least roughly, what's going on and how dangerous it is. Second, uh, Litigation can help at the new Civil Liberties Alliance, which is my little civil liberties group, which um, I love, and we've got wonderful lawyers. Um, we litigate these issues, and that is – you're not going to win all of the cases, at least at first, but it is a mode of – litigation is a mode of education. It's a way of getting a different perspective before judges, and eventually they, they increasingly get it. I think, for example, you mentioned Chevron deference. A survey done by Dick Posner and, 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 and a colleague several years ago, published in the Harvard Law Review, uh, revealed that about 40% of federal judges understood the danger of Chevron deference. Well, that shows that just a few years of education can go a long way. So education, being candid and litigating to get those candid thoughts across can go far. And this podcast, I think, is useful. That's why I do these things. So thank you. Philip Hamburger is author of Purchasing Submission, Conditions, Power, and Freedom. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 